I'm Aaron Chen, and welcome to Startup Roast, the Raw Society's podcast where the time thirsty entrepreneur discovers the latest of what's brewing in Hong Kong startup ecosystem. And for the first time ever, we're having Daniel from 24 Hour Race. And actually, it's not your typical startup, but it's actually a charity. So, why don't we uh, have Daniel do a bit of self introduction? Awesome. About myself or about the charity? I think both. I think our audience would love to learn more about things you do, where you come from, how you end up in a charity and the startup ecosystem in Hong Kong. Cool, yeah. Um, So you're right. We definitely are not your traditional charity or your traditional startup in the sense um, that we can very much operate um, like a startup uh, in terms of um, strategy, format, and even our fundraising model, finance model, um, and also uh, we also work kind of tech heavy, which is not very normal for charities. Um, but we're not startup because we've been around for ten years. Um, so, so yeah, you're right. Um, so um, I'm Daniel. I'm with the Twenty Four Hour Race and Anti-Human Trafficking Youth Empowerment Charity. And I hope that by the end of this uh, talk show, that that'll make a little bit more sense. Um, the charity was started, uh, was founded in 2010. Um, it was started by a high school student um, who kind of saw some sort of a gap in the, not in the market, but in society, if you will. Um, it was started by a high school student? Yes, by, uh, by, uh, by a guy named Chris, uh, Christopher Schrader, who, um, who basically realized that some of his, a lot of these High school students have so much potential, but um, there's very little, there's kind of few avenues for them to really kind of step up in leadership. And also awareness about um, what many would say is today's most pressing issue globally, modern-day slavery. So the race was was born, uh, it was meant to be a one-off thing in 2010, but they realized that this concept, this race, this model, is something that uh, really worked for high school students. So since 2010, it's, uh, it's grown very organically, which is something we'll touch on uh, later as well, um, to now we're running uh, seven races around the world, uh, two in Hong Kong, and, uh, and yeah. So that's a really brief um, history of, of the charity. Awesome. Well, I think we got this off the internet, but so basically on today's episode, we're brewing with Daniel from 24 Hours Right Race, which is a social enterprise that strives to end modern-day slavery, as you mentioned, through student-led races, correct, conferences, and other projects, which we can cover later, and to raise funds to fight slavery while giving young people leadership opportunities and the voice to be changed. Good. Well done. <laughs> <laughs> well done, Internet. So I, I think the thing that really stands out to me is the fact that it kind of started by a high school student. So in that sense, it's really much like a startup. Because a lot of startups that we see in uh, not only garage, but also in just in the Hong Kong startup ecosystem in general, started by students or actually started brewing when they're in university. And then the idea really came to life when they started working and when they entered the society. So. What do you think about that, having students to lead projects like this? Because I feel like maybe at least the more traditional way of thinking would think that you know students are they're too immature, they don't really have what it takes you know, to really lead something as big of a charity or start a company. So what do you say to that 
you know, to that kind of point of view as to compare it to um, a charity or a startup like 24 Hour Race, you know, where a student can really take initiative. Yeah, um, we our views are quite con contradictory to the um, I guess the traditional views of what high school students, you know, people if they're lazy, um, they just you know kind of skate by to get good grades, um, which I mean is uh, not it's not all encompassing. You know, it doesn't mean nobody would do that. I mean, I kind of did that when I was in high school, um, so I get the stereotype. We're all guilty. <laughs> I get the stereotype, but we really believe that there are so many high school students out there with so much potential um, to not just lead but lead well, and not just organize but organize well, um, and not just um, strategize and brainstorm, but do all of it really well, um, which is why I, I think it's really unique what we do in terms of working with high school students and after we've grown to continue working with high school students um, and kind of stay, stay true to that core value we have. Uh, we believe that there is so much untapped raw potential in high school students um, that yes, they're green, yes, they need to learn uh, things as they go but um, they already carry so much inside and we're there really not to dictate or tell them what to do, but just to give them a platform and, and kind of trigger um, some of the skill sets or, or abilities they already have and we just want to give them a, a platform to, yeah, to really just use their, their gifts. So one thing that really stuck out to me last time was kind of at the briefing here in the Raj Society, actually in this very space. And um, you introduced me to your uh, CEO, oh, well, like an operation kind of manager. Yeah. Um, his name is Brian, right? Brian, Brian operations yeah. director, yeah. Yeah, operations director. I mean, that's a big title. And I was surprised to find out, I mean, he looks young, but I was surprised to find out he's still in school, in high school. And then the rest of the members are all high school students. And they were presenting to a group of 20, 30 people in like a proper kind of business setting. So I'm quite impressed as students can actually do projects like that. Because um, just from our time in school, like I think the most we've ever done is like service projects, but nothing that's related to almost creating a change, social change in the community. And I'm really surprised to see that students these days can actually do projects and handle projects and head it up to that standard. So what do you think is the secret there? You know, because I, I feel like at least when we were in school, the environment hasn't changed as much, but what's the key ingredient there to empower them to do such big projects? Key ingredient, it's um, a good question. Um, I think I'll get to it, and I'll start with, we, having been around for 10 years in Hong Kong, six years in Malaysia, seven years in Singapore, um, the race has grown. And to become a core director, so we have a multi-tier uh, way of or involvement. So each city has five directors whom you met for uh, uh, last week, um, and those five directors, all high school students, by the way, all high school students, five directors, five student directors who apply to become a student director. So we do get, um, I think in Hong Kong, Singapore, and KL, we had over 120 applicants for 14 positions. Um, so we get to be quite selective in who becomes a director. Um, and then beyond that, we have uh, the rest of the organizing committee um, 
make up 15 to 20 different positions and they're kind of under those five directors or five departments. Then, so that third tier of involvement still really involves what we call a team leader, represents a, a team or a school. Right. And they still are, and they're really critical to, to bridge the gap between the thousands of participants and the small team of organizers. Um, and these team leaders, uh, we take, you know, well, we take, take them very seriously and, and, we, and they are the bridge and they um, are very involved as well. And then, of course, uh, the fourth tier of involvement is being a participant. Or a race day volunteer. Um, so you know our in, the impact is definitely deepest within the five directors, right. and then uh, the 20, uh, 20 to twenty five committee members, and then um, so on and so forth. The key ingredient um, is uh, I, I don't know. I, I think one of the things that sets us apart and why they enjoy working with us is because we take them really seriously. Um, yeah, and we don't have. You know, when you're in school, you have a project, and you know you're running it by yourself. But in actuality, there's a teacher kind of standing in, yeah. in the back, having having the final decisions. In our case, um, that's that's not the case in our situations. Um, whereas they really run a company for nine months for the final end product being this 24-hour race. Um, and yeah, so the key statement I would say uh, is that we're by the students for the students. Um, of course, we're there with legal work, uh, making payments, permits, some of the like uh, governance compliance stuff that we deal with, of course, because um, that's for for legal purposes. But uh, and we but we do really give them an, an empty canvas saying, okay, you can't change the format 24 hours. It's a really race, but you know the rest is up to you. What entertainment, what music, uh, when you know when to start, how to organize it, who's going to come, who's the speakers. They do everything, and they do it really well. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I feel like the, the model that you have in 24-hour race is similar to a lot of, of companies where they have, um, it's almost like a sharing economy kind of model where you don't, for example, I'm not going to name the company, where you don't, any, don't own any cars or you don't own any space, but you're able to create a platform where people can sign up and through that network can kind of affect, really leverage the power that they have individually. To create something, because um, they don't—they're not officially employed by the company. Am I correct? No, they're all our volunteers. Yeah. Yeah, but then together, they're—I think—they're really able to create a project that's up to the scale of maybe our company project that is, has all paid employees. So I really see that as an interesting model that you have at Point Four Hour Weeks. Because as I know, like their staff member isn't huge. Um, the fully employed ones like yourself. Isn't huge, but the, the team is actually big because you have all these volunteers to help out. Yeah, yeah, that's that's true. Um, that does lead to complexities such as the high turnover rates, or frequent and high turnover rates. Um, but uh, yeah, you're right. We, we don't run short man hours because those who end up becoming directors usually are um, juniors or seniors in high school, but they've run. You know, in the first year of high school, they really liked it. Maybe they volunteered in the second year. Okay, third year, I'm going to give it a shot. I want to organize this thing. Um, so, in, in one way, we're blessed with an endless supply yeah. of, of, of manpower. Um, but it comes with its sense of challenges right. as well. It may, you know, no one is hired. Um, and, you know, their time is limited at the end of the day. And they're green, you know, they're high school students. Um, but we, 
you know, that those challenges are you know, just a part of our everyday life and we learn, we're still learning to deal with them. But I, this is also something that the school really encouraged them to do, right? Because I, as I know, it goes to their cast hours, which is kind of like a service learning thing. Yeah. So I think in that sense, it does go well with school and works well with the whole educational ecosystem. Yeah, definitely. Um, the directors and committee members especially use this for their cast, um, for their university applications. Um, but it does go one step beyond it. Um, we we not that the main motivation has to be I want to solve slavery when they go into the um, to apply to become a director, uh, but oh, but there's definitely some level of empathy, some level of under kind of a little bit more uh, motivation than I just want to do this for my CV um, is required because at the end of the day, it's a lot of work. They could do many similar projects that uh, require a lot less hours and would still be kind of impressive on a, on a CV. Um, so then what we, again, through a pretty extensive interview process, we are able to find those who, of course, will still want to do it for the university applications, but still have a, uh, I guess, maybe a, a perspective that's a little broader than I just want to do this because it looks good. Um, and just kind of touching on what I mentioned earlier, we don't necessarily need people who are 100% passionate, I want to end slavery today, because we realize that a lot of people don't really know too much of, of how deep and, and difficult or how broad the issue of slavery is. So, but one thing we do see at the end of this, amongst many things, is that their, their heart for the cost as well, it grows um, throughout the experience. So I'm gonna talk, I'm gonna touch on the topic of slavery a little later. Yes. I feel like it's a very, heavy topic and it, there's a lot of content there but i think i would just like to dial back a little bit to more of the race part so actually at garage we have a team that participated in one of your race team 24 actually um, our programming director james was in the team now was back in april i believe um but it's more than just ordinary race like maybe like standard charter marathon because there's the meaning behind it is to end modern-based slavery, but then why a race? And can you just tell them more about what the races actually stand for yeah. and why you organize races like these? Yeah, so um, the, the core of what we do are these 24-hour races, um, which we can perhaps dive deeper into later. Uh, we have one corporate and ideally more corporate events uh, as well called P24. And they don't run for 24 hours, they run for 24 miles. Uh, big difference. I don't know if we would get adults or corporates to come down for 24 hours. Um, so the reason we do the Pink 24, it, it got birthed out of interested parents of runners in the 24-hour race uh, who wanted to engage their companies. Um, and we realized that there's a big pool of, of cor corporates who want to run in the name of combating modern-day slavery as well. So we. We threw the race together, um, and I, in theory, how it should work is the 24-hour races are self-funding through ticketing sales, uh, food and beverage sales, and whatnot, um, that they're self-funding, meaning that the fundraising can go towards our, all of our projects. Uh, and then we have corporate events that, I, again, are self-funding as well, but they're the, extra fundraising will go towards, you know, 
uh, or uh, extra donations will go towards funding the, the 24 hour race uh, charity as well. So uh, the reason we do the corporate event is for one, because we also think adults are uh, need to know more about you know modern day slavery, right. but B, um, it's also to help enable us to keep going and kind of targeting our, our audience being high school students. So let's give our audience a little bit of more of background on modern day slavery, because it seems like a concept that only exists in your history textbook. But I think for a lot of our audience, they'll be surprised to find out that it still exists today. So in what format and in which country does it exist? And you know, what does what does it actually entail? What does modern day slavery actually entail? Yeah. Um Slavery is illegal in every country in the world, but it exists in every country in the world. Um, there are uh, six forms of slavery. The two biggest that we can touch on today are called forced labor, uh, which essentially means that uh, a worker is exploited um, through various ways, either no salary or no same salary, no same working conditions. Um, there are 40 million slaves uh, worldwide, which you know put them all together in the world's largest city, um, and which just kind of talks to the magnitude of, of the amount of people enslaved today. So, uh, with the majority being in forced labor, which is factory workers, you know, producing probably everything we're wearing right now, um, and, and everything in this room, even um, clothes, technology, food. Um, and a lot of uh, some stories would be there are you know boys in fishing villages um, around Southeast Asia who don't know how to swim, but they you know they're forced to go out on these boats in the morning and catch fish. It doesn't matter to the to the worker or to the owners of who how many come home you know because kids they will fall into the boat they'll drown because they don't know how to swim. They just there's an endless supply of poor kids, so they'll just send more kids out the next day. Um, in, in, in factories, you know, women are raped daily and, and still have to work and they're not paid. And, and it's just these horrible, horrible conditions um, that exist that a million of people, uh, millions of people are in. Um, but it's just, and I do know that I'm skipping ahead a little bit to the next question about why it's so difficult to talk about. But um, it's such a distant problem. And it's so hidden and it's so quiet that people don't know about it. Um, and the supply chain issues um, are so complex and that we don't hear about it. Um, and you know, usually what we don't hear about doesn't exist. So yeah, you're right. Now, most people will hear the word slavery um, and, and they'll think, wow, didn't that, you know, wasn't that ended when did that end with the North Atlantic slave trade ended? Uh, but no, it didn't. And the second second highest form of slavery would be sex slavery, which is forced prostitutions um, or or just people who are locked up somewhere or, or kidnapped or um, you know this happens in Hong Kong too. You know, you walk down Temple Street um, and you try to ask whether those ladies, um, you know, where you're from or you know, or how are you doing and stuff. You know, in a matter of seconds, there will be a pimp there. Um, you know, because those ladies can't go home. Um, or if they can, you know, it's just, it's all controlled. Um, so, you know, it happens here, even here in Hong Kong, um, even out, you know, literally 100 meters away from us, we're in the red light district right now, there are Filipinos, um, and Thai, Vietnamese ladies who do not have 
any say in any of their conditions and are forced to work here, maybe even in this building. So it happens around us, it's just getting so what you're trying to do here really is to raise the awareness to races like these to try to basically disclose and shine a light on this, these hidden dark corners where most people do not see. Yeah, um, yeah, definitely. So part of what we do, um, our, what we do, we have our mission is twofold. Um, one, we, we have these fundraising projects that we do every year. Last year, um, it was called Operation 24. Uh, we were able to fund the rescue and arrest of 503 victims and traffickers, um, and then fund X amount of uh, research, uh, 21,000 hours of research across uh, 100 locations. Uh, so we do these yearly projects, um, and which is, are we ever gonna reach all 40 million? No. Um, but we still believe that every person has a fair chance, which is why, as long as we exist, um, we're going to fundraise as much as possible to have these projects that we do. Um, and this year, again, we have a similar project about trying to take children out of, out of slavery, and, and we're, our project is uh, called CAC, is a child advocacy center that we're, that we're funding the, the rebuilding of, which takes children out of slavery, uh, and is there kind of an emergency First stop is where you know they get uh, treated by doctors, psychiatrists, and, and, and they do research and stuff. So that's one part of what we do. And the other aspect is uh, working with young people because we really believe that the long-term solution um, will be made by tomorrow's decision makers. Um, and who or they they are high school students. You know, the the high school students are going to be making the decisions in ten years. And we want to reach them and then mold them at an age um, where they're they're so teachable and where they're so um, open to new experiences and um, and yeah so we I, we can dive a little bit more into maybe the twenty four race uh, or how we believe that um, our work with these high school students kind of helps uh, solve some of the issues but I don't know what what do you want to touch on that. So what's interesting there to me is that you're focused not just on the present, like solving the issue, but you're also focused on tomorrow. Right. You're investing in the future and these high school students who you believe, you know, would eventually enter the workforce and have a lot of say in how the society goes. And I feel like a lot of startups, maybe they just focus on solving problems today, or you know, those charities or businesses they want to solve today's problem because that's kind of, that's what they see and maybe that's where the profit or that's where the that's where how they can sustain their business model. But I really see investing in the future as a trend these days. Like maybe in businesses that are doing AI, they really invest in the future. And I'm also very surprised to see that a charity can focus so much on the future and invest a lot of time and also resources into young people. Two stories come to mind. Um, I attended a uh, Stop Slavery Summit here last year when I was fairly new with the 21st, so a couple of years ago. Um, and I was just looking around the audience. So it was an open, it was a Saturday, um, so it wasn't during uh, school or working hours. And I was just looking around, and there was a lot of people in attendance, some big speakers, so it attracted a lot of people. And there was, I was the youngest one in the room, but probably 20 or 30 years, which was sad. Um, 
you know, where are the young people? Um, and then uh, a few months afterwards, like we attended a CNN did an event here in Hong Kong, um, and the audience members were it was at a high school, so we used to facilitate at a, at a high school at a local high school here. Um, and, and and at the end, everyone was talking. They had some set questions, and at the end, they were asked. The audience were to ask questions to the panel, and they had to address to whom they wanted to address the question, and then the question. And almost all of the questions were addressed to the twenty-four hour race, um, and because they and they really wanted to know more about how they can get involved. They wanted to know more about how we're trying to combat this this issue. Um, and then through through those two events, I realized that we need to invest in young people. We need to 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 go one step beyond. One thing is being aware of something. Um, it's easy to make people aware of, of of an issue, but we want to not just make people aware. We want to make this. We want to give these young people an opportunity to to have both the the tools and the platform to do something with their knowledge, if that makes sense. So we want to take it one step beyond. We, 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 of course, a lot of what we do is we travel around Asia and in Europe and North America to schools. We do workshops, we do awareness talks, and we believe in the value of also spreading the word uh, as well. But we all, we're not satisfied with just doing that. You know, in, in each of the cities we go to, we want to kind of give them the tools and the platform to do something with their knowledge. Which is what excites me the most about the twenty-four hour race, um, and in a way, yes, uh, it definitely is like these companies investing into the future. I think the perfect story that summarizes the twenty-four hour race's impact, and I do realize I'm skipping some questions here or jumping into the to the later questions about you know how we are actually affecting modern-day slavery. I think the perfect story took place a few months ago. I got an email from from a student um, who studied in the UK, and uh, he got a studied law in the UK. Um, he was a director in Hong Kong, studied law in the UK, and then now is working at a law firm in the US. And he sent an email saying that thank you so much for for being around for the twenty four hour race for being around. Um, I I just took on a job. I just finished studies. I took on a job here in, in Pennsylvania, and I was doing some due diligence in my free time. I don't know idea who does due diligence in their free time, um, but anyway, he did, and he said, "I saw some loopholes where we're not holding our clients accountable um, to to some loss here." Some, and then he brought it to his boss, and the next day, you know, they immediately enacted it. The boss was like, "Oh no, we you know we need to make sure that we hold our clients accountable," and they dropped three clients that week um, who you know slavery related issues in their supply chain and their and their clients you know they they weren't clean enough um, to you know uphold those standards so they had to let them go which for me just made me more proud than than ever uh, I realized that is exactly what we want to do bring in a young person who has so much potential so much ability um, and and kind of and, and mold them at such a formative age and these things stick. Uh, with with them, and now there's a law firm in Pennsylvania that just got a lot more ethical and cleaner because of someone's time with the twin first. He wasn't a he wasn't a director; he was a committee member here in Hong Kong in 2013. I think. Yeah. Wow, incredible! It's like you're sowing a seed when you're still students, and it really sometimes it really germinates into something great. You know, when they enter the workforce. Yeah, yeah, it's cool. So, with all the funds that you've raised, how how do you 
ensure that it goes to good cause. Like where, because like you mentioned to me before, you know, maybe you're not exactly like a startup, but you are undermanned, under-resourced. So obviously with the funds you have, you want to spend it well. So where do they, you know, end up and how do you ensure that these go to a good cause and do something that's effective to actually achieve your objective? Good question. Um, how we can, are you also asking about, I guess, financial transparency? Is that a little bit or yeah, being, a little bit also. Uh, financially sober. Yeah, I think it comes through having a, on a high, uh, high on the high level, having a good board who, um, having an honest good board who care about the cause, care about the charity, who helps a lot. Um, and then once you have that, you make good hires because uh, the board approves of the hires. So once you have a good core uh, in place, you know you have a good platform to work on. And I and I guess we're able to pick and, and hand choose and kind of create these projects with other charities. Um, so we know exactly how much it'll cost and how where the money is going to, um, which is which is great. So this year's project. Took a few months to formalize, but I'm really excited about it. It's it, our charity partner is called A21, um, and we're supporting some work in Thailand. So in, in terms of our projects, we're able to, it's fairly straightforward to make sure that it's, it's being put to good use. Um, and then in terms of what we do in-house, our own charity work in terms of youth empowerment, you know, spreading awareness, we believe in our mission, and we believe that the more we do what we do, the, the more impact we're having. So um, I would say that we're doing a good job. So I really believe uh, in what we're doing and how we're doing it. And you really, I think it shows also on your portfolio and resume that because you've been doing a good job, it really expanded to a lot of locations. Let me see, where else do you have races? You have races in KL, San Francisco, Wales, just to name a few in Hong Kong. Course. So, in only a few years, we've expanded to Europe, Southeast Asia, even North America. And what do you think, besides managing your resources well, contributed to the growth? And how have you modified kind of your model to adapt it to the rest of the world? When you have a good product and you have at least decent delivery, you should grow. We have a good product in terms of, we have a model that young people connect with. Um, we have uh, small staff, so we have decent delivery. Um, and we, you know, with the challenges of being young, um, then being uh, turnover rates uh, being high, and then being volunteers, uh, again, our delivery is, is decent. I wouldn't call it excellent. So we have a good product, we have a good, de good delivery. Um, so, you know, we're, we're, we're set for growth. Um, we've grown more organic and sporadic than strategic. Um, we have, you know, in, in San Francisco, Cardiff, London, um, and I believe KL grew because someone ran the race in Hong Kong or Singapore, and they, they moved to the city and go, oh my God, I want to bridge the race here. I believe and we get a lot of these applications. Um, you know, they're almost uh, bi-weekly. Someone, you know, will say, hey, I heard about the race, or I ran the race or my cousin ran the race, how can I bring the race to my city? So we're not short of options in terms of where to bring the race. But I, why I said it, it, it's, it so it's very organic, uh, but sporadic. You want to implement a little bit more, or we're in the process of implementing more of a strategic expansion 
uh, in terms of targeting cities rather than being targeted, you know, by being brought to cities. Um, so that's that's how we've grown and how we, you know we want to now that we have a base, we want to be a little more uh, intentional about where we're going. I guess that's the start of our life, right? You know, you kind of. Um, you're, you go where the wind blows uh, because you want to follow momentum, and then you know once you kind of form something, you want to be a little bit more strategic. So, are these people who approach you the race participants, like the young people, or are they high like school students? High school students. Wow. Wow. So that's to not not to make it too like business driven with your entire charity after all, but it does seem like you are. Very much like the business who saw a market that was untapped, which is students to say like, I think they're really neglected in a lot of these um, businesses where they you know maybe target people who are like purchasing or buying power. You know, even charity, you know, they want raise funds, right? So they basically target people who have the you know power to maybe give some money to the charity. And they, this group of people, high school students, to name. They really get neglected in this process, so it's almost like untapped consumer market. And I think 24-hour race saw that, and they really tapped into that market, and it has really grown and has really bared good fruits, so to say, in not only raising awareness but also raising funds and also really bringing sustainable change that lasts to the future. That's the story you just mentioned about you know someone who ran a race when they're a student and eventually when they enter the workforce they bring about change you know in a society and in a workforce you know so the, I think the power there is really to identify something that is untapped and really release the potential. Yeah, definitely. We in terms of similar charity events globally, we don't have. Um, too much competition that we're aware of. Um, there are a lot of races uh, in the U.S. There are a lot of overnight races, um, but but here in Asia in particular, there are not a lot of these sort of endurance challenge based races um, for high school students or exclusive high school students. So yeah, you're right. It's, it was an untapped uh, model or an, an, an untapped uh, audience, um, and having a sustainable model in terms of our races being um, self-funding um, and you know it does allow for group for growth as well uh, and by current projections depending on if a city is tier one or tier two um, based on um, uh, depending on where the city is we should also be uh, self-funding by year two or year three when we do bring the race to the new city as well so there's there's a level. There's a level of initial investment into a new city. We don't necessarily expect to break even. Um, so we have different streams. We have event uh, revenue, and then there's fundraising. So the, the event revenue, main ticketing, sales, food and beverage sales. It's hard to be self-funding in a year one race because you're still kind of getting your name out there. But ideally, by year three, in all cities, we should be self-funding, which uh, which is a cool concept as well. So how can People like us, working professionals, and how can students and how can basically people in different tier of society support these kind of costs? Yeah. Um, how can you, as a professional, or how can you, as someone working not for a charity, help a charity in, in a nutshell to reword it a little? Yeah. 
This is going to sound slightly controversial. <laughs> All right. Charities don't really need many more volunteers. We don't really need more people to, to come in and um, and help us out, you know, with, with their with their hands with whatever. Um, I would say, unless you're a professional, unless you're a doctor, unless you're uh, a lawyer, unless you're a professional house builder, if you don't, if you are not eligible to build a house in your home country, please don't build a house in a foreign country either. It's reckless and dangerous, um, and I I don't advise I don't advise for it. Um, rather put the money that into and hire local staff. Um, please don't go to a foreign country and, and do things you're not allowed to do. You don't even if you're not qualified to treat people medically. Don't at home. Don't do it in a foreign country. Um, locals will see a foreign face and automatically trust them. You know if they have the right gear and money, and it, it could do more harm than good. Um, that was a tangent, um, but bringing it back in. Um, we don't necessarily need more people to come in. What we do need is finances. Um, and of course, there are avenues. If you, you know, there are charities working with kids. There are charities working with animals, and they need people to come in and take care of them um, and to show empathy or to teach to teach, maybe teach English. Um, if there's something like that, then, then do it. Uh, but for us, as, as, as a charity, um, we don't necessarily need more volunteers. We need, uh, you know, we need more cash sponsorships or participate in, in our corporate events, run. Um, but going beyond how to help charities, um, which isn't the end result. The end result is how do you help combat this issue? Um, then there are so many more ways to do it. Um, multiple ways come to mind. Yes, you can engage your, your company in events. Um, but even taking it one step further is you can ensure that your company is operating ethically um, and that, that's, that would be, you know, if more and more people would do that, kind of hold their own workplace accountable, um, you know, imagine how much better the world, you know, things would be or leave where you are if you can't stand for, if you can't stand for your company, leave it, you know, um, what are some other ways, you can even just spread awareness internally, um, you can learn, a key thing is you can learn how to identify um, at-risk individuals in your own society. So in Hong Kong, for example, how do you identify a, a domestic helper who might be abused? You know, there are ways to do that. Um, you know, it's a huge issue in Hong Kong. Thousands of domestic Filipino um, and, and, and Indonesian helpers here in Hong Kong are abused mentally, physically, emotionally, every day, thousands. And we don't do anything about it. Uh, so, for example, learning how to do that. Or in Hong Kong, there are even construction workers who are tricked to come in here and, and, and don't get salary. Uh, and so, just just stuff like that um, are things to do. Just, so, yes, um, I do want to clarify a little bit. You know, I, I, it's good if people go to charities um, and, and spend time and kind of, but and, and show love to people. That's good, um, but. Definitely, there are better ways to get involved um, and letting the professionals do it. So let charities do what they do and do it well. And, 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 well rather give more money than spend uh, $40,000 
and to send eight kids to go do something. Rather, put that money into the charity and, and let them do more work, let them do better work. Um, it's definitely more sustainable now. Will that, will that happen? No, because you know there's also something about exposing those kids to these truths and maybe they can then also be motivated to do something about it. So I get that part as well. Um, but yeah, I hope that kind of answers the question. If you're a corporate, join the P24 race, I'll say that. So it really boils down to how best to allocate your resources into where it can bring out the most efficient and yes. effective change. Or and another huge thing, I can't believe I forgot it is, um, just be an informed consumer. Just uh, buy ethically, eat ethically, um, consume ethically. You know, there are so many apps you can download and you'll immediately know how ethical a supply chain is, or sorry, someone, a company supply chain is. Um, and it's very simple to do. Um, so you have a sustainable model, and you have an objective, a clear objective, and goal you want to achieve. So let me ask you this: you know, in the future, how do you see twenty-four hour race evolve, and what's next for you guys? I I want the twenty-four hour race to become a force to be reckoned with. I want us to be in so many cities, in, in engaging thousands uh, of youths around the world, so that we can go. The 24 hour that we can target a company and say to them, you know, if you do this, 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 the 24 hour race will endorse you. And they know, wow, that's a big deal. And we're going to do that. Or the other way around, you know, you, you better change that or else, you know, the 24 hours will stop buying your product or we'll maybe tell our runners not to buy your product. Um, I, I want us to become, because that means many things, that means one, we've grown. Um, I mean, one that we're, we're taking seriously um, and see that we, from a financial point of view, we're also uh, generating those funds that kind of enables us to to take on bigger projects and to bring the race to more cities. So I see um, I see us evolving that way, definitely. Um, we're not going to get there tomorrow. We need um, a, a clear five, one, five, ten year plan. Uh, but that's definitely where I see us evolving. That really can bring about social change because I've seen a lot of um, charity maybe really struggle with you know trying to make um, a change that is to be reckoned with in this society. So yeah, I I really love to see that if a charity can move these big corporates, you know, and I think having the students and having high school students on your side and basically sowing the seed into these future builders and thinkers and decision makers of society can really bring. About that change, and yeah, I love young people that. care, man. They really care, um, and we we see it. And you know, the driving force behind so many movements today are by young people. Um, and can testify to that in Hong Kong, can we? Yes, we can. We believe that the message of everyone deserves a chance to be heard, seen, rescued. Um, you know, that message to combat slavery and, and spreading it. Um, if the young people can run with that message, it's going to be kind of like wildfire. We're seeing it at a small scale, um, going towards seeing it at a medium scale. We want to see it at a large scale. Where can our uh, viewers find information about these races or future races? Go to Instagram and go peak24 or uh, go online, go peak24.org or 24 hour race. Awesome. So you heard it, and this has been the start of those. Thank you guys for coming over. Yeah, for having me. Appreciate it.